Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, and it is a joy to open God's Word with you today. For those of you who might not know, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Philippians. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament of your Bible. And the reason we preach from the Bible is because we want to hear from God Himself, rather than my opinions or the opinions of someone else. And the reason we normally typically work our way through one book, portion by portion, is because we want to receive all that God has to say to us, trusting that He knows best, rather than just picking and choosing from here to there uh, some of our favorite passages. Another reason we work our way through a book is because we want to see the argument of a book as it moves along. And I trust that has been helpful to you all uh, in this particular study, especially on weeks like last week where we see uh, Paul returned to the themes of unity and joy, themes that he'd been building on uh, throughout the book. We are in Philippians 4. Verse 5b through 9 today. So if you haven't turned there yet in your Bible, please do so. That's Philippians 4, verse 5b through verse 9. Follow along with me uh, in your Bible as I read. Philippians 4, verse 5b. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What happens when we worry about something? Let's consider an example. Say I'm a student and I'm worried that I'm going to fail my test next week. Now, on a certain level, worry serves me well and it's not sinful. It's good and wise to have a proper level-headed realization that I need to step it up, I need to study hard for the test, I need to prepare well. But if that worry is allowed to grow and get out of hand to the point of consuming my thoughts and possibly even leaving knots in my stomach, it actually ends up distracting me from studying because I begin to despair. And when I'm despairing, I can't focus. It keeps me from sleeping well and getting the rest I need to study well, to think well, and to write the test well. 
And it ruins my joy in the days leading up to the test because I can th- because all I can think about is failing the test and all the negative repercussions of that. I may find that I struggle to even engage other people as I should because my mind's just not there. Maybe I'm even a little bit rude and aloof, a little bit irritable. My thoughts spiral, and soon I'm imagining myself failing out of the degree, disappointing my family, and clueless about what else to do with life. And again, all of this makes it very hard to actually focus and study. And here's the thing, right? It's been said that worry is like a false prophet. Even if I end up doing great on the test in the long run, this out-of-control worry or anxiousness that's consumed me for the days leading up to the test has meant that for those few days, it's as if I did fail the test. Because that's the reality I was living in. For those few days leading up to the test, I was experiencing all the negative repercussions of failing. Anxiety can be crippling. So how how do we overcome worry and anxiety? How do we overcome worry and anxiety? First of all, we must put off anxiousness. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says. And the starting point in this is recognizing that anxiousness is not something that just happens to us, that is unavoidable, especially in particularly overwhelming circumstances. It is a response. And as we'll see as we move our way through this text, it is a response that flows out of a certain way of thinking about our situation. Now, I do realize there can be some complexity to this. Some of us are naturally people who tend towards anxiousness, and some of us are people who just don't. But that is true of other areas of sinful conduct, like anger or laziness, too. Some of us couldn't get angry if we tried. But even if this is something that is a particular struggle for you, God still calls you to battle it. You can't just say, well, this is, this is how I am. What can I do? I also realize that there can be some medical factors involved with anxiousness, with discouragement, with depression. And I'd be very happy to talk further about that after the sermon. But what I'm pointing you to today from God's word is that God does not want us to be anxious. And he calls us to fight against it in the ways we'll be looking at in this passage. And that is true, even if there are some other factors you'll need to consider as well. There's a section in the book of Ephesians where Paul looks at one area of ungodly conduct after another. And time and time again, he calls his readers to, first of all, put off something, but then to turn, sorry, which is to turn away from it, Um, to stop doing it, but then also to put on something, to begin to do the opposite thing, the appropriate thing in that area in its place. So, for example, no longer steal, but now be someone who is generous. 
Okay? In many ways, that's what we are going to be seeing today in this passage. We are to recognize that anxiousness is something that God calls us to turn away from, something that we can and must turn away from, and are to put off. And like in the Ephesians passage, turning away from it fully requires not just putting it off, but putting something else on in its place. So what do we replace anxiousness with? What do we put on? We must pray. We must pray. Paul calls us to replace anxious thoughts with prayer. And not just a prayer here or there, but rather an ongoing practice of prayer. He says we must pray in everything. We must pray in everything. And this reminds us of other passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that calls us to pray without ceasing. I've heard it said that when we do not pray, we are essentially living like atheists. Because we try to handle life on our own without the help of God. And brothers and sisters, if this is how we, how we uh, are approaching life, we should not be surprised if we find ourselves getting anxious. We are all very limited people, all of us. And many things are far too much for us to handle on our own. Far too much, far too much for us to handle even with a fantastic network of, of friends and family. And further... If we're living as if there's no rhyme or reason to what happens in the world, no design, no purpose behind anything, no God ruling over the details, then life quickly begins to feel very, very out of control. And we feel a strong urge to do everything we can to control it ourselves. Alternatively, though, if I am living in the reality that I have an all-powerful, perfectly good, perfectly wise, loving Father in Heaven to turn to in life's struggles, who rules over every detail in this world, then that is so, so different. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. And if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? 
Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world, in other words, the unbelieving peoples of the world, the, the, the pagans, they seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Live as if your God is real. Don't get anxious like those who don't even believe in your God. One of my old Bible professors used to say that we can obey the command to pray without ceasing by aiming to make every thought a prayer thought, by thinking through everything in quiet internal conversation with God. As some Christians have said in the past, this is basically practicing the presence of God, living in the reality that He is always with us, and He's always available to us, always caring for us. As we pray to God, we should look to Him as the good Father that He is, who always welcomes requests from His children. Paul says we must pray in everything, And we must pray with supplication, letting our requests be known to God. You see, Paul is not calling us to some sort of uber-spiritual attitude that just pretends that nothing difficult in life affects us, and that everything is easy. Reality is it's not. You won't find anywhere in the Bible where we are expected to, to just live as if life is not difficult. We're encouraged to bring our requests to God and to be honest and real in our interactions with Him. In the Lament Psalms, for example, you'll find some surprisingly blunt, raw requests made to God. Very honest about how confused people are about why God is allowing certain things to happen and why He hasn't acted to stop those things happening. In Matthew 7, Jesus says we must ask and He assures us that our Father in Heaven delights in giving good gifts to His children. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So we certainly can bring our requests to God. When we are in difficult situations, we can ask for what, if we're honest, (laughs) right, for what we most would like in that moment. Most of the time, our first request in difficult situations is that the difficult situation would end or it'd be eased in some way. And it's fine to ask for that. But we should not, however... Assume that God will always answer our prayers 
by changing our circumstances or removing a trial from us. Sadly, many churches today that call themselves Christian teach that this is what God always does for his, for his, for, uh, his followers. He always takes away their sickness. He always takes away their money troubles. He always gives them the promotion at work. And they promise their people that God will do these things for them, especially if they put a little bit of extra money in the offering plate. But this is not what the Bible says. Think of Paul himself. In 2 Corinthians, he talks of having a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't get specific about what exactly that was, but it was a trial to him. He says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul says, God didn't answer my prayer to take away that trial. He told me instead that he would give me the strength I need to endure that trial as I depend on him. Now certainly there are times when God may help us by removing or lessening the trial. But we should not assume it's the only solution. We should not assume it's the only way that God can extend care for us in our difficulties. Oftentimes our circumstances, just like Paul, with Paul, will not become easier, or at least not anytime soon. And in such cases, it's important to know that God still expresses His fatherly care for us in helping us in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulty we are facing. And it is still possible, with God's help, to turn away from anxiousness. I'd encourage you as you pray, as you bring your requests to God, not only to ask God to make things easier for you, or to take the trials away, but to also pray that if it is God's will for the trial to continue, that you will have the strength to endure it, that He will give you the wisdom to know how best to conduct yourself in the situation, and that He will help you to maintain your joy as you remember that God will accomplish good in your life through the trial. And ask Him, as this passage talks about, for that peace that passes understanding as you rest in God's plan. Paul also says that we are to pray with thanksgiving. We are to pray with thanksgiving. And there are at least two reasons why we can do so, no matter what our circumstances are. First of all, because of the unchanging truths of surpassing value. Many of the reasons we can give thanks in any circumstance are much the same as the reasons we looked at last week for why we can always rejoice. For why Paul can call us, command us to rejoice always. The most important and precious and lasting blessings in the universe are ours as Christians in Christ. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus 
and from God's promises for his own. The sufferings of this life, Paul tells us elsewhere, are not worthy to be compared with the glories that will be revealed. And a second reason we can always be thankful, no matter our circumstances, is because we can count our trials as joy because of what God is accomplishing through them. God is working all things together to make us like Jesus. God uses trials in our life to mature us and to grow us in our walk with Him. So Paul tells us that as we pray like this, as we keep these things in mind, as we continually interact with God in prayer, there's a peace that passes understanding that will guard our hearts and minds. We're talking here about a clear sense of, of inner contentment, the presence of calm, where maybe previously in our anxiety it felt like there was a storm raging within us. Now we feel this presence of calm, a lessening of worry as we confidently rest in God and His care. And I love the wording here. It's a peace that passes understanding. Why? Why does Paul say that? Because given our difficult circumstances, it's a peace that doesn't make sense to non-Christians. It's a peace that doesn't make sense in light of the difficulties we're facing. I believe this peace that passes understanding is both a result of answered prayer and a result of the perspective we adopt and we live in when we pray like this. Because when we're praying like this, what are we doing? Rather than despairing and seeking to tackle a difficult situation with everything we can personally muster, rather than running around turning to friends who are also limited in their own ways for help, or desperately searching on YouTube or Google, Rather than that, we're reminding ourselves that everything we're facing is under the power of God, and He is with us. We can talk to Him about all we are going through, and He listens and cares, and nothing can thwart His purposes, and He will work all things together for our good. That makes for a very different situation overall. It makes for a situation I don't need to be anxious about. I realize the difficulties I'm facing are all in God's hands. They will not destroy me. They will be used for good. It makes for a situation in which I can rest in God's care and in His hands know a peace that passes all worldly understanding. Thirdly, how can we overcome anxiousness and experience God's peace? By setting our thoughts on virtuous things. The Bible has a lot to say about how our thoughts shape our lives. Some of you may have heard me use this illustration before, um, but it is much like the idea of brewing tea or coffee, right? I've got a, hot, I've got a cup of hot water over here. And that is my mind. 
And I take a couple of spoons of, of instant coffee and I put that in the hot water. Or maybe I put a tea bag in there. Right? And now, depending on how much coffee I put in there, or how long I leave that tea bag in there, to, to that extent that water is, is, is influenced. Right? It is flavored by what, what, is satur- what it is saturated in, what it is soaking in. Or what is soaking in it, I guess. This is why you have passages like Romans 12, 1 through 2, that talk about us being transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we think about what is true and live in light of what is true, we live differently rather than just being conformed to the way this world does things and to the way this world views things and to the way, what this world values. And this has been a factor throughout the book of Philippians. We've seen time and again Paul's joy, even in difficult situations, because he is reminding himself of truth. We see Paul reminding the Philippians as well that their citizenship is in heaven and that Jesus will return to make all things new. And this passage calls them to think on all things virtuous, to have their outlook colored, to have their their lives flavored, so to speak, by all things virtuous. Verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Now, this is a pretty long list, and it goes beyond um, what a number of other passages will call us to uh, in our thought life. It goes beyond just reminding ourselves of certain doctrines and reminding ourselves of the hope we have in Jesus' return. It points more than that to how God is at work in a myriad of ways in this world. You see, brothers and sisters, I will often say to people, evangelistically, right, that if you look at this world, there is clear evidence of two things. There is clear evidence of a great and glorious God, right? There is a created world that is just too complex, too amazing, to have just happened on its own. There are wonderful blessings in this life, beautiful sights, beautiful sounds, delicious tastes that didn't just happen on their own. And there's also uh, evidence of God at work. Um, God at work in this world, particularly when you, you understand what the Bible says about how He works then you start seeing him at work in all sorts of details. But this world also declares to us, right, that it is broken, that sin is real, that pain is real, that there is certainly wickedness and evil. And now we can choose as we live in this life, which of these things to focus our attention on. 
Now, as I've already said, the last thing the Bible calls us to is some sort of pretending that life is not broken, that life is not hard. But at the same time, we're not to despair. We're not to look at these things as if life is hopeless. We're not to look at at, at the brokenness in this world as if evil has won. It has not won. Christ is still on his throne. Jesus wins and he's coming back and will make all things new. So as we look around us in the world we live in, we pay attention to evidence of a good creator, a glorious creator. We pay attention to evidence of common grace, a beautiful day with, 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 of, of, of clear skies and bright sunlight. Or, you know, maybe, maybe perhaps after a, a long time of, of hot weather, some refreshing rain. We enjoy the sunsets. We enjoy good food. We enjoy music. We enjoy family. We enjoy friendships. We see all these things as from His hand. And we give thanks. And we, rather than despairing, rather than feeling like everything's spiraling out of control, rather than giving way to anxiety, we renew our minds with what is true. And we see God at work. Even as the Bible doesn't expect us to pretend that evil and brokenness are not real, we don't need to dwell on those things. Evil does not win. There's a song called, This is My Father's World. And it starts off by singing about the glory of God in creation. But then as the song continues on, it begins to speak honestly about the darkness in this world too. And it notes, Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is king, brothers and sisters. Set your thoughts on all the evidence around you of his glory, his goodness, and his hand at work to accomplish his purposes. And lastly, follow Paul's way of life. We've seen this a lot in Philippians, haven't we? Time and time again, Paul is holding up an example before us. Obviously, most strikingly, in chapter 2, he holds up the example of Jesus himself. Jesus' selfless life. Jesus um, sacrificing uh, and suffering in order to serve us. But he's also pointed to the example of Timothy the example of Epaphroditus, and several times to his own example. And here he points us to his example again. Verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now this verse shows us how extensive 
discipleship, mentoring, learning from example should be in the Christian life. There are certain things that we are more likely to, to or how, do, how does it go? Some things are, are more easily caught than taught, right? It's not just a matter of listening to sermons. It's also a matter of seeing how Christians live out their faith. Seeing how they turn away from anxiety and trust the Lord. Right? It is a multifaceted thing. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. Okay? Our faith is not just about head knowledge, but again, it is about living out those truths. And certainly that includes holding fast to the doctrine that Paul has taught them about Jesus, the gospel of grace, the Christian life. But it is also living in light of those truths. Paul calls them to his example of constantly striving to know Christ more. And to grow in Christ-likeness. In living to advance the gospel. In considering others more important than himself. In working to maintain unity in the church. In always seeking to minister to others. And strengthen them in their faith. Paul calls them to his example of prayerfully trusting God in difficult situations. Rejoicing even in suffering. And keeping an eternal perspective. We are to remember these truths as Paul did and live in light of them with fitting priorities and eternal perspective. And Paul closes this passage with, with these words, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. In summary, we could say of this passage, how do you experience the peace of God? By remembering that the God of peace is on his throne and walking with him daily. How do we experience the peace of God? By remembering that the God of peace is on his throne and walking with him daily. Amen? Okay, thank you.